Good afternoon, everyone, and Happy New Year. Uh, glad to see everybody virtually. Hope everyone is healthy and safe. Um, we live in unprecedented times. Uh, we uh, had hoped to uh, continue doing our banner lectures uh, in person, uh, but obviously uh, the pandemic had other thoughts. Uh, but um, uh, we're glad that you're sticking with us. Uh, we do appreciate your continued support, and I hope that we'll be able to to start to do these in person again soon. Um, before we uh, we introduce today's speaker, uh, just want to give you a heads up on a couple of uh, programs that we'll be doing later this month and into February. These, of course, will all be virtual. Uh, but again, I do hope that we'll be we'll be back to live programming soon. Uh, on January 18th at 7:30 p.m., uh, we will participate in the National Day of Racial Healing. Uh, we're coming to the table chapters across the Commonwealth and the Richmond Pledge to End Racism. We'll, ho we'll host singer-songwriter Chris Matthews uh, in a concert that will be live streamed. Uh, so be sure to tune in for that. Our next installment of uh, the Between the Lines Book Club uh, will be on January 25th at 7 p.m. That will also be a virtual program. Uh, the book being featured will be Cold Mountain, who will probably be familiar with many of you. Um, our curator conversation programs will continue into February. Uh, the next program will be on February 7th uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, that is a virtual program as well, where we'll be featuring uh, our Senior Director of Curatorial Affairs, Andy Telkov, and uh, our VMHC Curatorial Assistant, Catherine Sturgar, who will discuss uh, Catherine's role in the development of our upcoming exhibition, Our Commonwealth. And she'll be talking to you about some of the behind the scenes stories uh, that we'll be featuring in that exciting project. Uh, our next banner lecture, which was scheduled for January 26th uh, on how imperfect is our past, that was a conversation we were going to do between uh, VMHC president and CEO Jamie Boskett and former VHS director Charlie Bryan uh, has now been moved uh, to March 15th, so mark your calendar. We really wanted an opportunity uh, for people to be able to come back uh, and experience that in person. So uh, there'll be more coming out about that program uh, very shortly. Uh, but today we're very happy to have with us uh, Dr. Mary DeCredico. Uh, professor of History at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. Um, Mary will be talking to us today about a recent book she's done uh, on Richmond uh, called Confederate Citadel, Richmond and Its People at War, which offers a detailed portrait of life's daily hardships in Richmond during the Civil War. Drawing on personal correspondence, private diaries and newspapers, Mary spotlights the human elements of Richmond's economic rise and fall, uncovering its significance as the South's industrial powerhouse throughout the Civil War. Please welcome Mary DeCredico. Thank you, Adam. It's wonderful to be here, um, albeit virtually. Uh, it's, it's especially nice for me because I spent many happy hours in the Virginia Historical Society researching this book. And I benefited from the wise counsel of the late Lee Shepard, Francis Pollard, Nelson Langford, and Charlie Bryan. So it's wonderful to be here today. The Confederate capital at Richmond, Virginia has generated a good bit of scholarly attention, especially recently. 
which of course begs the question, why study Richmond? Why was it so critical to the Confederacy? What do we learn by studying the city and its three governments, municipal, state, and Confederate? What about its people? Native Richmonders and those who flock to the city to find jobs, safety, and other opportunities? I've been drawn to the Confederate history of Richmond ever since I read Emory M. Thomas's The Confederate State of Richmond. In, the, in this preface to the second edition of this book, Thomas reflected on topics he wished he had addressed or fleshed out in more detail. In large measure, that is what I tried to do in my book. As Greg Kimball has so aptly observed, Richmond was an American city and a Southern place. In many ways, the city was an anomaly in the antebellum South. Its political culture was Whiggish. It had a strong and influential commercial class and was the South's major manufacturing center, anchored by the venerable Tredegar Ironworks. Like the Commonwealth itself, Richmond followed a tortured path to secession. Strong economic ties to the Mid-Atlantic and the Ohio Valley kept secessionists at bay until President Abraham Lincoln asked Governor John Letcher for a quota of Virginia forces in his call for 75,000 90-day volunteers. That act pushed Virginia and Richmond into the arms of the Confederate States of America on April 17, 1861. Perhaps in response to the addition of the Old Dominion into the Confederacy, the Confederate Congress, meeting in Montgomery, Alabama, elected to relocate the capital from that rather sleepy town to the more urban and industrial city by the James River. That decision would fundamentally dictate Confederate and Union strategy in the Eastern theater of the war. Contemporaries then and historians since have questioned the logic of that decision. After all, Richmond was only 100 miles from the federal capital at Washington. It would ensure that what is now the I-95 corridor would be the cockpit of the war, but it was a logical decision. Even if Richmond were not the Confederate capital, it would have been defended at all costs. It was a railroad hub, although none of the lines were connected in 1861 through the city, and it was the South's industrial center. It boasted a port. Perhaps most importantly, it was the home of revolutionaries. Thomas Jefferson designed the venerable Capitol building and an imposing equestrian statue of George Washington dominated the state grounds. Just blocks away, Patrick Henry had demanded liberty or death during a meeting of the Second Continental Congress in St. John's Church. It seemed all the more fitting that a revolution for Southern independence should be based in Richmond. As you might imagine, the relocation of the Confederate capital made Richmond an extremely popular destination. The city was alive with activity as young men swarmed to enlist in Confederate armies and as others sought employment in government offices or wartime ministries. The atmosphere was electric as Richmonders, Virginians and other Southerners predicted quick victory. Some despaired the war would be over before they had a chance to fight. By late July, 1861, all eyes were focused on the movements of federal and Confederate forces located just 25 miles outside of the Union capital. The first battle of Manassas or Bull Run as the Union called it, was more a slugfest between two armed mobs than a battle between armies. To underscore the short war mentality that gripped North and South, Spectators rode out to the area of Manassas, armed with picnic baskets, to watch the spectacle unfold. The line surged back and forth, but what began as an orderly federal retreat evolved into a full-blown rout. Union soldiers and startled civilians frantically scurried to get out of harm's way. When the dust settled, 
the Confederates held the field and celebrated the first victory of the war. Rejoicing was the order of the day throughout the Confederate capital. The Richmond Examiner captured the mood of most on July 22nd when it wrote, this blow will shake the Northern Union in every bone. The echo will reverberate around the globe. It secures the independence of the Southern Confederacy. The churches of the city should be open today and its inhabitants should render God their thanks for a special providence in their behalf. But many in Richmond were surprised by the casualties. Approximately 1,700 dead and wounded Confederates and 1,600 Union with an additional 1,200 Union prisoners of war. Such losses would be considered mere skirmishes by 1862, but these numbers sobered Richmonders, especially as the wounded and POWs descended on the Confederate capital in the aftermath of the battle. The city was ill-prepared for such a crush of humanity. The bright hopes of late July 1861 were quickly replaced by shock, disillusionment, and despair as locals learned of a succession of Confederate reverses. Port Royal, Roanoke Sound, the loss of Forts Henry and Donaldson in Middle Tennessee, repulses in Missouri and Kentucky. As acerbic editor Edward Pollard opined, no one who lived in Richmond during the war can ever forget these gloomy, miserable times. This was the reality when Thomas, when Jefferson Davis <laughs> split, was sworn in as permanent president of the Confederate States of America on February 22, 1862. The date chosen was by design. It marked the 130th anniversary of the birth of George Washington. The weather was anything but encouraging. Dark clouds and a steady rain augured ill for the cause, but Davis refused to be bound. Seeing a sea of umbrellas in Capitol Square, he exhorted the crowd to be worthy of the revolutionary legacy and to, quote, emulate that heroic devotion which made reverses to them, but the crucible in which their patriotism was refined. For Richmonders in the spring of 1862, the real concern was the Union Army of the Potomac's ambitious amphibious landing at Fort Monroe. Led by Major General George B. McClellan, the Army was poised to launch the first of many onto Richmond campaigns. McClellan had assembled an army of over 120,000 and had begun to slowly advance up the peninsula between the York and James Rivers. Concerned about this threat just 60 miles from the Confederate capital, Davis convened a meeting of his commanders. The assembled generals and their commander-in-chief met well into the wee hours. Davis directed Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston to hold Richmond at all costs. Locals were only too aware that the Federal Army was at the gates of Richmond. People would climb the hills of the city and could see the Yankee behemoth. Federal soldiers could hear the church bells toll in Richmond. Deeply concerned that Johnston was retreating, Davis journeyed to Seven Pines, where he encountered Johnston on a litter, badly wounded with a shell fragment in the chest. Johnston's second-in-command, Gustavus W. Smith, took over, but Davis preferred his personal military aide, General Robert E. Lee, to take command. Uh, here at the map of uh, Richmond, uh, Virginia, Richmond in 1860, and the Richmond Grays. gives you some sense of how well equipped they were in 1861 and 1862, and the map of 1862. As the fighting petered out at Seven Pines, Richmonders were brought face to face with war, really for the first time. 
if the bloodshed at Manassas shocked them, the tide of dead and wounded who inundated the capital overwhelmed the available hospitals. One bystander noted dozens of surgeons, bare-armed and bloody, flitted through the warehouses, doing what man might to relieve the fearful havoc man had made. A Richmond lady, Constance Carey, and her sister set out to find a relative who had been wounded at Seven Pines. Nothing could have prepared them for what they witnessed as they walked down Main Street. Such a spectacle, men in every stage of mutilation, lying on the bare boards with perhaps a haversack or an army blanket beneath their heads. Some dying, all suffering keenly while waiting their turn to be attended to. While the people of Richmond tended to the wounded, the newly christened Army of Northern Virginia was poised to defend Richmond. The battles of the seven days were not Lee's finest hour. Miscues and miscommunications dominated, but Lee kept the pressure on, driving McClellan back to Harrison's Landing. The final action, a frontal assault at Malvern Hill, was to one of Lee's subordinates, not war, but murder. The week of heavy campaigning came with a cost. Residents heard gunfire, gunfire and cannon fire constantly. People talked about feeling constant suspense. One local recorded day by day as the red tide rolled back, it swept into Richmond terrible fragments of the wreck it had made. Manassas had hinted at the slaughter of a great fight. Seven Pines had sketched all the outlines of the picture, but the seven days put it all in the dismal shadows, every variation of grotesque horror. Adding to the strain on the city's resources was the appearance of hundreds of federal prisoners. As one local remarked, my God, what are we to do with them? We can't feed our own people. There was a great deal of truth in that exchange. The Union blockade of Southern ports was becoming more effective. Large areas of rich farmland in the Old Dominion were scenes of battle. The corridor between Washington and Richmond was especially affected. War clerk J.B. Jones noted in his diary that basic staples, such as coffee, butter, and meat had doubled in price, while Confederate currency continued to depreciate. The Provost Marshal John Winder attempted to address the problem by fixing prices that were usually well below the market rate. That exacerbated the problem as farmers withheld their crops from Richmond city markets. Locals in the city press excoriated the speculators and hucksters who were profiting at others' expense but such critiques did little to ease food shortages that would only grow worse as the war continued. Although McClellan stayed ensconced at Harrison's Landing, Lincoln summoned General John Pope from the West to command a new army, the Army of Virginia. Pope threatened to cross the Rapidan River and assault Richmond from the North. But Lee dispatched Thomas Dade Stonewall Jackson to deal with the threat. The result was a resounding Confederate victory at Second Manassas. The news of this victory electrified the people of Washington and with McClellan's withdrawal, gave them some breathing room. In the span of two months, the Union Army had approached within five miles of Richmond, but now it was 25 miles in front of Washington. Perhaps that reality that the Virginia countryside was devastated motivated Lee to embark upon his first invasion of the North. He admitted to Jefferson Davis that the Army of Northern Virginia was ragged and ill-fed but he proposed to strike north to cut the key railroad hub at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and to take the war to the Union. People in Richmond knew Lee's army was on the move, and they hoped to receive word that the rebels had advanced on Baltimore or Philadelphia. But if one sentiment dominated, it was relief. The Army of the Potomac had left Richmond and the Old Dominion. 
T.C. de Leon voiced the sense of most Richmonders when he wrote, excitement reigned in the rebel capital, but it was joyous and triumphant. The people had long panted to see the theater of war and strife transferred to the prosperous fields of the enemy. Conflicting reports of what was happening caused confusion, but people willingly followed Davis's proclamation to observe a day of fasting and prayer. By September 21st, locals knew Lee had been forced to retreat back to Virginia. The woman, one woman noted the most desperate battle of the war was fought on September 17th. She was more prescient than she could have known. The battle at Sharpsburg, Maryland on Antietam Creek was the bloodiest of the entire war. More than 22,000 Union and Confederate soldiers were killed, wounded, or missing in what was essentially a tactical draw. But for Lee and the Confederates, it was a strategic defeat as they were forced to retreat back to Virginia. As reports of the battle filtered back to the Capitol, residents were stunned at the magnitude of the carnage. Equally distressing was the news Abraham Lincoln had issued a preliminary emancipation proclamation <coughs> setting January 1st, 1863, as the day all slaves in states in rebellion would be henceforth and forever free. Davis pronounced the proclamation the most execrable measure in the history of guilty man and directed that any United States colored troops captured be executed along with their white officers. The mood in Richmond was subdued as autumn advanced. Constance Carey noticed more and more men and women were clothed in black. Federal incursions in the surrounding area led to more refugees seeking safety in the city. Those added numbers strained an already reduced market for food and lodgings. Many were forced to rely on family and friends in other parts of the Confederacy for provisions, while multiple families crowded into rental homes or overcrowded boarding houses. Prices continued to rise and many feared the winter of 1862 and 1863 would cause a famine. Adding to local worries was one government official's prediction that the state's wheat crop would be insufficient to feed Lee's army, let alone the civilian population of the Confederate capital. While the central government seemed unable or unwilling to address the civilians' plight, the Richmond City Council sprang into action. The city had a long history of extending poor relief, and that tradition continued during the war. The City Council directed the overseers of the poor to give relief to the families of Confederate soldiers. The council ended the year by stating even more money would have to be appropriated in 1863. To add to the dismal situation, an epidemic of smallpox, scarlet fever, and measles broke out and forced the city council to implement a quarantine of parts of the city to contain the outbreak. These diseases were no respecter of class or status. General James Longstreet hurried to the Richmond from the front only to watch helplessly as three of his children succumbed to scarlet fever. Food shortages and disease were not the only problems that vexed city officials. A new federal commander, Ambrose Burnside, launched another campaign against Richmond, this time from the Rappahannock. As Union soldiers shelled the city of Fredericksburg, a steady stream of refugees from the besieged city flocked south to Richmond. By the end of 1862, most believed the city of 38,000 in 1860 had swelled to over 70,000. Many locals wondered how Richmond could feed and house any more people. According to war clerk J.B. Jones, New Year's Day in 1863 dawned in gloom, but like the son of Austerlitz, soon beamed forth in great splendor upon a people radiant with smiles. 
The year 1862 had ended with a stunning Confederate victory at Fredericksburg, and the news from Middle Tennessee seemed equally auspicious. But as January proceeded, the same challenges that had confronted the city before faced them again. Food continued to uh, be scarce and rents were on the rise. War Department bureaucrat Robert Garlic Keene estimated that his salary of $3,000 would only go as far as 700 in 1860. Unfortunately for Richmond citizens and its refugee population, there was a class dimension to the hardships. Confederate politician Clement C. Clay wrote to his wife that in the city, a general gloom prevails because of the scarcity and high price of food. In Richmond, the poor clerks and military officials are threatened with starvation as they cannot get bored with their pay. General Lee reported to Secretary of War John Seddon that his men were on half rations, consisting of 18 ounces of flour and four ounces of bacon of indifferent quality per day. Several problems caused the state of affairs. The winter of 1862 and 1863 was unusually harsh. Locals noted more than 22 measurable snowfalls. In late February alone, Richmond was buried under 18 inches of snow from one storm. Although some saw silver lining, full ice houses in the spring and summer, others realized that the inclement weather further interfered for farmers getting their goods to the city's markets. Once the snow melted, the roads were impassable because of mud. With families struggling and men off at the front, women entered the Richmond workforce. But class made a difference in the types of employment women could garner. Educated women, middle and upper class women, could pass written examinations for positions signing treasury notes or compiling lists for government bureaus. Some challenged conventional norms by becoming nurses or hospital matrons. Visitors to Richmond were struck by throngs of women who were going to and from factory jobs. These women, teenagers and little girls, were largely illiterate and hence unable to procure positions in safer environments. One of the largest employers of women was the Confederate Ordnance Bureau's laboratory located on Browns Island in the James River, just south of the Tredegar Ironworks. Richmond Daily Dispatch noted that a village has sprung up on Browns Island where over 300 girls are daily employed. The Browns Island girls, as they were known, worked on everything from manufacturing percussion caps, primers, and signal rockets to packing ammunition and making small arms cartridges. Their daily wage varied from $1.50 to $2.40. On March 13th, Friday the 13th to be exact, a worker at the Tredegar Ironworks heard a heavy explosion, not unlike an earthquake. Christopher Tompkins and his co-workers were perplexed, but concluded it was the explosion of a gun. Just a few minutes later, a man rushed in stating that the, the laboratory had exploded. The men hurried outside to see what had transpired. What they witnessed was horrifying. Dozens of girls dazed and badly burned by the explosion. One wrote, some of them in their fright ran from the adjacent buildings and plunged into the river to extinguish the flames. Confederate Ordnance Bureau Chief Jetsiah Gorgas, horrified by the casualties, ordered an investigation. Apparently, one of the older laborers, teenager Mary Ryan, had been attempting to dislodge a primer that was stuck on a varnishing board. So she struck the board three times very hard on the table. Ryan told Gorgas that after the last strike, quote, she was immediately blown up to the ceiling and on coming down, blown up again. For the initial explosion ignited gunpowder in the room. Of the 69 killed or wounded in the blast, 
62 were females and chiefly girls and children. Mary Ryan lingered for four agonizing days before suddenly, finally succumbing to her burns. Locals were horrified by what they read in the newspapers. J.B. Jones was especially troubled because the victims were, as he called them, little indigent girls. Jones's comment went to the heart of the problem. The victims of the Browns Island accident were poor girls and teenagers who had few skills, but desperately needed the pay the laboratory provided them. Because they were illiterate, they were unable to obtain safer, better paying positions in other government bureaus. Many who managed to survive the blast were left permanently disfigured and unemployed. One girl who did survive and was horribly scarred told a Northern visitor after the war, there was five weeks nobody thought I would live, but I didn't mind it. It was for a good cause. Despite the obvious danger, when the laboratory reopened, young girls and teenagers lined up to get positions. Adding to the woes of the survivors and other working class Richmonders was the ongoing spiral of inflation. Meat could not be found and vegetables were scarce. Fuel to keep families warm during the harsh winter was delayed because of persistent snowstorms. Once again, an epidemic of smallpox broke out and sadly tended to hit the working class neighborhoods the hardest. Local Samuel Mordecai wrote to his brother, this state of things cannot continue without producing something of a civil commotion. Mordecai had more foresight than he knew. Richmond's working class was hard hit by the high cost of food and fuel during the winter of 1863. Although wages did rise, they could not keep pace with inflation. Fearing starvation, a group of working class women gathered at the Belvedere Hill Baptist Church in the Oregon Hill neighborhood on April 1st. Located at the western edge of the city, Oregon Hill was an enclave of working class Richmonders, many of whom labored in the Tredegar Ironworks. By the end of that meeting, the women had resolved to petition Governor John Letcher for food. If refused, they determined to seize it forcibly. Here the slide of the bread riot. On April 2nd, the women assembled and wended their way to Capitol Square. They were joined by many other working class people. Such a gathering was not out of the ordinary. Throughout the war, Capitol Square served as a great meeting place where Richmonders would flock to exchange information, watch military parades, and generally enjoy the park-like expanse. Those who gathered that morning selected a delegation to meet with the governor. Apparently, the women never met Letcher, only an aide, so they carried out their threat to seize food. Contemporary accounts of what happened next vary, but contain certain common elements. J.B. Jones encountered a group on his way to the War Department. As he said, not knowing the meaning of such a procession, I asked a pale boy where they were going. An emaciated young woman answered, they were going to get something to eat. Jones's response was blunt. I could not for the life of me refrain from expressing hope that they might be successful. And I remarked that they were going in the right direction to find plenty in the hands of the extortioners. Ordnance Chief Josiah Gorgas was not as charitable. He recorded in his diary that a crowd of women assembled on the public square and marching thence down Main sacked several shoe, grocery, and other stores. According to Gorgas, their pretense was bread, but their motive was really license. Few of them have really felt want. Sally Putnam found the rioters a heterogeneous crowd of Dutch, Irish, and free Negroes. They were armed and looted whatever they could. 
Putnam did admit there was a want of bread at this time, but the sufferers for food were not to be found in this mob of vicious men and lawless viragos. First Lady Verena Davis noted that her husband received word of the disturbance at his office, and he proceeded at once to the scene of the trouble in the lower portion of the city. Mrs. Davis reported the rioters were headed by a tall, daring, Amazonian-looking woman who had a white feather standing erect from her hat and who was directing the movement of the plunderers. The mob made its way down 9th Street to Maine and then to Cary Street, attracting more participants and spectators to its ranks as it went. As the assemblage proceeded, they attacked various establishments in Chaco Slip, loading food, shoes, and other goods into wagons as they continued on their way. One witness was struck by a pale, emaciated girl, not more than 18. He went on, as she raised her arm to remove her sunbonnet, she revealed a mere skeleton of an arm. When asked what was happening, the gaunt teenager replied, we celebrate our right to live. We are starving. As word of the riot spread, shopkeepers and merchants did what they could to protect their establishments. On Franklin Street, several merchants barricaded themselves within their stores while others met the mob with firearms. One of the fullest accounts of the riot came from Confederate soldier Hal Tautweiler. He wrote to his sister that when he arrived at his office, he heard a most tremendous cheering. He and others walked down the street and noticed a large number of women had broken into two or three grocery establishments and were helping themselves to hams, middlings, and butter, and in fact, everything they could. He estimated the crowd at 5,000 and stated, Governor Letcher told them to disperse, and if they did not, he would have them fired on by the city guards. Perhaps one of the more ominous accounts of the incident came from George M. Waddy, who wrote to his aunt about the riot. After describing what he witnessed, Waddy concluded, God only knows what will become of the people. I do not wonder that it has occurred, and I'm afraid it will be even worse that there will be war with the poor against the rich. For my part, I do not blame the mob for what they did. Though some middle-class Richmonders voiced outrage about the incident, others supported the rioters. The foremost student of the riot finds that participants included some who were respectable and solidly middle-class. That some of the rioters might have been better off than the less genteel types the press and other locals tended to blame for the disturbance indicates that the once prosperous middle class was slowly sinking into poverty as a result of high costs and stagnant wages. The situation in Richmond remained tense. Local officials placed cannon on Richmond street corners to discourage any further violence. And the Department of Richmond commander notified General James Longstreet that his men were on alert due to the continually threatened riots in Richmond. More women gathered on April 3rd, but were quickly dispersed. The Richmond bread riot was not an isolated occurrence. In the spring of 1863, similar demonstrations rocked High Point in Salisbury, North Carolina, Atlanta and Augusta, Georgia, and Mobile, Alabama. Nonetheless, the Richmond riot was the most serious and demonstrated how critical the situation was in the Confederate capital. With the city's population swelling to almost 100,000, and with inflation seemingly out of control, locals leaped into action. Two days after the riot, the Richmond City Council adopted a resolution to appoint a committee from each of the city's three wards and to, according to the report, inquire and report some plan for the relief of the meritorious poor of the city 
and for excluding from such relief all who render themselves unworthy of it by riotous and disorderly conduct. The council went on to state, the said mob or riot was uncalled for and did not come from those who are really needy, but from base and unworthy women instigated by worthless men who are a disgrace to the city and the community. Basically, after the April 2nd riot, the council would distinguish between those worthy to receive aid and those not. The language they employed is instructive. Some noted that there were those who were better dressed than the majority of the mob. Others characterized the ringleaders as being Amazonian or public women, euphemisms for prostitutes. The latter were vilified and received much harsher sentences in the Hustings Court. But the city council did work assiduously to aid the growing ranks of the poor in the Confederate capital. It directed the overseers of the poor to establish a city store open every week where the meritorious poor could obtain free food. Free fuel was also offered. The council exercised strict oversight and refused to dispense money for fear it would find its way to a tavern or a gambling house. Equally significant is the reality the Confederate government did nothing. If anything, its economic policies exacerbated the situation in Richmond and elsewhere in the Confederacy. During the severe winter of 1863, Congress passed an Impressment Act that empowered the Confederate Commissary Department to take food and other goods to supply the Army. The War Department did reimburse farmers for what they seized, but it was well below the market price. Then, in late April, the Confederate Congress enacted a new tax one scholar has deemed stern to the point of being confiscatory. The section of the law that caused the most outrage was the tax in kind. 10% of all crops and all slaughtered livestock went to the army. The result, hoarding. Spring meant the renewal of the military campaign season. It began auspiciously with Lee's masterpiece battle at Chancellorsville, but it came at a cost. His most trusted and aggressive subordinate, Stonewall Jackson was wounded by his own men and succumbed to pneumonia while recuperating. Jackson's body lay in state at the Capitol and Richmonders were stricken with grief. Emboldened by his victory at Chancellorsville, Lee reorganized his army and launched his second invasion of the North, again hoping to cut the critical rail link at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. For three days, the Army of the Potomac, under yet another new commander, General George Meade, fought ferociously against Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. The climax, Pickett's Charge, shattered Lee's offensive capabilities. Richmonders waited expectantly to learn of how Lee's soldiers were faring in Pennsylvania, but they were unprepared for the news of a disaster out west, the fall of Vicksburg on July 4th. As Sally Putnam noted, the news to us in Richmond was astounding and paralyzing. The sun of hope had receded many degrees on the good fortune of the Confederacy. And then more bad news the growing realization that Lee's invasion had been turned back at Gettysburg. Josiah Gorgas spoke for many when he wrote in his diary, yesterday we rode on the pinnacle of success. Today, absolute ruin seems our portion. The debacles of summer made the fall a rather subdued period. Inflation continued to rise to even higher levels and more and more middle-class residents of Richmond found themselves financially stretched. Real income was down almost 40%, and by the late fall, the consumer price index hovered between a low of 700 times what it had been in 1861 and 2,200 times what it had been in 1861. 
the city council and the Virginia state government worked tirelessly to assist the growing numbers of poor and needy. All feared another harsh winter. As 1863 drew to a close, the Richmond Examiner's editorial captured popular sentiment. Today closes the gloomiest year of our struggle. What was once competence has become poverty. Poverty has become penury. Penury is lapping, lapsing into pauperism. The cry of scarcity resounds through the land, raised by the producers in their greed for gain, re-echoed by the consumers in their premature dread of starvation and nakedness. The new year of 1864 found little changed. Several residents reflected on how dingy, dilapidated, and war-torn Richmond had become. Others believed the Army of Northern Virginia's ability to stave off countless onto Richmond campaigns had made the capital invulnerable. In many ways, the situation in 1864 was a little different from the year before. Once again, the city suffered an unseasonably cold and snowy winter. Many of the snowfalls averaged eight to 10 inches and discouraged, again, farmers from journeying to the markets. Moderating temperatures caused quagmires of mud. The net result was empty markets, again. Locals wrote that they subsisted on cornbread, sour gum, and beans. Others stated that prices were so high, even those previously well off were worried. Josiah Gorgas dutifully recorded prices in his diary. On March 23rd, he observed, flour, $300 a barrel. A shad costs $35. Turkey, $5 to $9 a pound. Beef, $5 to $6 a pound. Eggs, $7, and so on. Sam and Mordecai wrote his brother after listing exorbitant prices. How the poor live is incomprehensible. Even federal prisoners held in Libby prison were touched by what they saw out their windows. One wrote, every afternoon I note in the street beneath my window a group of ill-clad juvenile beggars of both sexes. They hold up their little red hands to us and stand shivering in the cold. We throw them spare fragments of cornbread and occasionally a macerated ham bone, which they scramble for greedily that Union prisoners on reduced rations would feed the children what little they had underscores the desperation of the situation. Circumstances did not improve as winter progressed. One Confederate officer captured the plight of Richmonders during the winter of 1864 when he wrote, people without overcoats met one another on the streets and talked over the prospects of peace with their teeth chattering, their thin garments buttoned over their chests and their shoulders drawn up their gloveless hands sunk deep into their pockets for warmth. And yet the suffering was not universal. While many barely survived on scant food, others noticed the city was marked by reckless frivolity. The Richmond Inquirer railed against the excess in the city. While General Lee's army was on short rations and often without meat, while the doors of Colonel Munford's office were daily crowded with starving women, there have been those in Richmond who were spent spreading sumptuous suppers before their already well-fed neighbors and dancing with joy and delight as though no want or famine were in the land. Consuming the meat so much needed by the soldiers and depriving the famishing poor of the little that came into the city. Is our national independence to be disgraced by an imitation of manners, customs, and society of the fashion of strumpocracy from which our people are struggling with such giant efforts to free ourselves? Spring meant the renewal of the battle season and a new federal commander, Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant. Grant's strategy was simple, 
have coordinated campaigns in all theaters and keep up the pressure. He journeyed east to accompany the Army of the Potomac during the Overland Campaign in the spring of 1864. The battles of 1864 were seemingly endless. The month of May was marked by constant fighting every day. Lee was able to parry the blows, but as he admitted to a subordinate, we must stop this army of Grants before he gets to the James River. If he gets there, it will become a siege, and then it will be a mere matter of time. Sadly for Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, that is precisely what happened. By June, Lee faced Grant's legions in the trenches of Petersburg, less than 30 miles south of Richmond. Grant slowly extended his lines and sent his cavalry to the Shenandoah Valley to torch all the crops so that a crow flying overhead would have to carry its own provender. The burning, as Virginians still call it, made the rich valley an agricultural wasteland, which only made food even scarcer and more expensive in the Confederate capital. Again, the city council redoubled its efforts to meet the crisis and the state government commissioned a train to journey south to buy provisions. But it was not enough. Here we can have the, the slide of Petersburg, the federal trains. Tired, cold, starving, Lee's army at Petersburg was hemorrhaging from desertion. Grant kept up the pressure and finally broke Lee's lines in three places. Lee was forced to alert the Secretary of War. I advise that all preparations be made for leaving Richmond tonight. April 2nd was a bright, warm Sunday when a sexton at St. Paul's Episcopal Church handed Davis a telegram from Lee advising that the army was leaving Petersburg, heading west, and that Richmond should be evacuated. Word rapidly spread through the capital that the dreaded Yankees were coming. Mayor Joseph Mayo and the city council met hastily and implored the commander of Richmond, General Richard Ewell, not to set fire to the tobacco factories as Lee had ordered him to do. They rightly feared that the fires might become unmanageable. Ordnance Chief Gorgas begged Ewell to ruin the tobacco by pouring, temp pouring temp turpentine in the barrels, but Ewell was unmoved. The fires spread quickly, reached the Confederate armory, and soon explosions rocked the city. A visitor to Richmond described what he witnessed the night of April 2nd. I went out and what a sight. The street filled with all the ragamuffins, people hurrying, and now the plunder begins, men and women grabbing anything they can carry. Constance Carey wrote that night, the, tor the town wore the aspect of one in the Middle Ages, smitten by pestilence. The streets filled with smoke and flying fire were empty of the class of respectable inhabitants. The doors and shutters of every house tight closed. Another woman noted, as darkness came upon the city, confusion and disorder increased. People were running around everywhere with plunder. Barrels of liquor were broken open and the gutters ran with whiskey. There were plenty of staggering soldiers who had too much whiskey. <coughs> Rough women who had it plentifully and many Negroes were drunk. April 3rd, Mayor Mayo and the city council members who accompanied him rode out to the New Market Road to meet an advance party of the Union Army where they informed the soldiers the Confederate government had abandoned the city of Richmond. At 8.15 a.m., Major General Godfrey Weitzel accepted the surrender of the Confederate Citadel. Meanwhile, President Abraham Lincoln was aboard Admiral David Dixon Porter's flagship Malvern when he received news that Richmond had fallen. Thank God that I have lived to see this, Lincoln said. It seems to me that I have been dreaming a horrid dream for four years, and now the nightmare is gone. I want to see Richmond. 
we can show um, slides of the destruction. Because the Confederates had sunk mines and other naval vessels in the James River, the approach to the city was dangerous. The official party stopped on a sandbar near the 17th Street where Lincoln and his son Tad disembarked. The heat of the day, the dust and the lingering fires created quite a spectacle. Lincoln walked slowly toward the White House of the Confederacy on the corner of 12th and Clay Streets where General Weitzel had established his headquarters. Thousands of former slaves mobbed the president, weeping, cheering, and straining to catch a glimpse of Father Abraham. African-American correspondent Thomas Chester described the scene. The colored population was wild with enthusiasm. Old men thanked God in a very boisterous manner, and old women shouted upon the pavement as high as they had ever done at a religious revival. Lincoln eventually arrived at the Confederate White House and sat in a chair in Jefferson Davis's reception room. After some discussion, Weitzel took Lincoln to Libby Prison, where Confederates were now incarcerated. Weitzel had considerable conversation with the president about how to treat the conquered people. According to Weitzel, the pith of Lincoln's answer was that he did not wish to give any orders on the subject, but advised, if I were in your place, I'd let him up easy, let him up easy. Northern visitors flocked to Richmond to see the city they had tried to capture for so long. One of the richest accounts was George Alfred Townsend's report. A few minutes walk from Rocket's Wharf and we tread the pavements of the Capitol. There is no sound of life, but the stillness of a catacomb, only as our footsteps fall dull on the deserted sidewalk and a funeral troop of echoes bump their elfin heads against the dead walls and closed shutters. In reply, and this is Richmond, says a melancholy voice, we are among the ruins of half the city. The wreck, the loneliness seems interminable. This was the situation after four long years of war. The city of Richmond had become the essence of the Confederacy. But when the city fell, the Confederate dream of independence became a nightmare of burned buildings, worthless money, widows, and orphans. The end also ushered in a world alien to the white population. Their slaves were now freed men and free women. It remained to be seen if the proud city on the James could regain its lofty stature among Southern cities. Thank you. Mary, um, this is this is obviously a topic uh, that that you've given quite a bit of your professional career to um, the Civil War in general and, and Richmond in particular. So I'm curious as we wait for some questions to come in. Um, in the course of your, your research, what, what did you discover that was a surprise to you about this now very familiar story? I think the willingness of the people to sacrifice so much um, and their determination to the very end. Uh, it, I, I, I ask my students actually, if they believe Americans today would be willing to give up as much as Southerners, particularly in Richmond did. And they agree, no, they're not willing to make those types of sacrifices, uh, regardless of what you think of the cause for which they were fighting. And you ended the talk with uh, a sign of hope about how Richmond could potentially recover from from this devastating chapter, um, how how did they do it? 
How did how did we how did we get out of the the, the terrible situation um, that Richmond found itself in in 1865? You know, it's it's interesting that you should raise that uh, question, Adam. I was at a conference once where a, a person in the, the audience, not a professional historian, asked dumbfounded, "Why couldn't why couldn't the South rebuild as rapidly as Germany and Japan did after World War II?" And one of the historians said they didn't have the Marshall Plan, which is a very apt answer. Um, one of my uh, historian colleagues, Michael Chesson, would disagree. He believes that Richmond did not recover after the war. Um, I think that there is some, some new research out there looking at uh, urban areas after the war that did recover uh, unevenly. Uh, my mentor at Vanderbilt, Don Doyle, has done a comparative study of, of southern cities and found that Charleston and Mobile regressed while interior cities such as uh, Nashville and Atlanta flourished. Um, I think more needs to be done on the post-war period in Richmond, particularly the Reconstruction period, the whole readjuster movement to really flesh out that time to see how Richmond did recoup. Well, actually, one of the questions that came up during during uh, the talk was, how did your research compare uh, in terms of Richmond's response to the war with other Confederate cities like Mobile, Charleston, and New Orleans? Well, of course, New Orleans fell in April of 1862, so they're knocked out of the war early. Um, Charleston suffered a devastating fire in 1861. Then they were shelled. Um, and once they did begin rebuilding, were, were devastated by a, a massive earthquake in the 1880s. So they never really did regain. You do see um, a very rapid rebuilding of Atlanta uh, after the war. They, they, they pride themselves on being a, a phoenix rising from the ashes. So you do see some recovery. Uh, and you get the new South boosters like Harry Waterston of the Louisville Courier-Journal who's saying, you know, let's out Yankee the Yankees, uh, bring the cotton mills to the cotton fields. So there is a lot of movement to try and address problems that occurred during the war in terms of finding themselves with really only Richmond as being an industrial center and, and moving from there. And that's really at the heart of the whole New South movement. Uh, one uh, viewer has asked whether you would tell a little bit about uh, some names that folks will probably find familiar in this Richmond story, and that's Elizabeth Van Loo and Mary Jane Bowser. Uh, Elizabeth Van Loo, fascinating, fascinating individual. Um, a, she leads the Richmond Underground, uh, develops invisible ink. She has a extensive network of spies in Richmond and actually is giving information to Benjamin Butler when he's bottled up at Bermuda 100 in 1864 and 1865. And in fact, uh, she obviously greets the advancing uh, Yankees with open arms. She's thrilled and, and for her contributions, she's made postmistress of Richmond, which really does not go over well with the locals. In fact, when she dies, it's the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that erects her, her marker uh, at the cemetery. I'm not as versant with 
Bowser as I was with Van Lu, but her papers are, are just fascinating. The whole Ulrich Dahlgren raid and how she gets the body. This is a raid that took place in 1864. Um, and because she was ostensibly to free all the prisoners in Richmond and in Libby and Castle Thunder. And so he's ambushed um, his, the plans for it are found by a little boy. And of course it outrages the city that they were trying to do this. And they try to bury the body uh, secretly, but a lot of the Confederates in Richmond want this to be, you know, make a statement about this. And, and Van Lu, at much personal risk, gets the body, gets some of the personal effects of Dahlgren and makes sure that it's sent back to his father, Admiral John Dahlgren, who developed the Dahlgren guns. In fact, in the building next to where I am now is Dahlgren Hall, named for Admiral Dahlgren. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Richmond's African-American population during the war, uh, both enslaved and free? Um, there's a, a question specifically about the relationship between free blacks and the Confederacy in Richmond. You know, it's a it's really a fascinating story. In the antebellum period, Midori Takaji has an excellent book on this. Free blacks and slaves who were leased out in Richmond enjoyed incredible autonomy. The city would pass laws trying to restrict movement, uh, to restrict gatherings on street corners, and it, they were just ignored. And so you have this very vibrant life. What was striking to me was the irony that by 1863, the, the vast majority of the workforce at the Tredegar Ironworks is slave and free black labor. So here's the irony. You have African-Americans manufacturing weapons to keep them ostensibly enslaved. Um, they, I didn't go into, manpower gets so short that a, a Confederate commander in the West, Patrick Claiborne, proposes in 1864 to the Army of Tennessee, if our great problem is manpower, why are we not availing ourselves of this untapped source, our slaves? And of course, this sets up a very heated debate in the Confederate Congress. Uh, Howell Cobb saying, the day you make soldiers of slaves is the day our entire theory of slavery is wrong. And Congress passes a very watered down bill that says, okay, we will conscript slaves, but after independence, they go back to being slaves. Jefferson Davis writes an executive order 10 days after that law is passed and unilaterally says, I am conscripting 200,000 slaves and upon independence, they are free. And you actually have two units of African-American slaves who are found drilling on Capitol Square, which was taboo, that was whites only space. It's too little, too late, but I think it shows how far Davis in particular was willing to go to attain independence. Uh, it appears that during the war, that autonomy of the free and enslaved community uh, was, was really locked down because there was grave fear with all the whites at the front lines that you would have a slave revolt which explains the exemption to the conscription bill, the, the so-called 20 Negro law, where if you owned or oversaw 20 or more slaves, you were exempt from the draft. And that's where you get the beginnings of 
rich man's war, poor man's fight. So it's it's a it's a very tense tense situation. Uh, Mary Chestnut remarks in her diary that the slaves that she encounters in Richmond they're, they're sphinx like. You you can't tell what they're thinking, and that was very uh, concerning to the white population in Richmond because the slave population in 1860 was almost 12,000. Um, a lot of slaves are going to be impressed by the government to build fortifications, uh, working in the factories, they're teamsters, they're laundresses, they're working in the hospitals as nurses, they're grave diggers. So you, they are vital to the war effort in Richmond. Uh, James Brewer has an excellent book that's never really been surpassed called The Confederate Negro, where he details the tremendous contribution that free blacks and slaves make throughout the South, but especially in the Confederacy. Well, we we inferred a little bit about Richmond after the war, uh, but didn't talk specifically about Reconstruction. Um, and you talked about uh, tense moments. That, of course, was uh, a tense moment for a lot of uh, cities around the South uh, as they tried to reintegrate themselves back into the Union. Um, Anything about Richmond in particular during Reconstruction and their efforts to reintegrate itself into the back into the Union? Richmond and Virginia didn't have nearly as traumatic an experience as, say, South Carolina, um, Florida, and Louisiana. Those are the only three southern states that had Reconstruction last until 1877. That means that they were under military occupation until 1877. When the radicals took over Congress in 1867, uh, they divided the South into five military districts and basically put them under martial law. Uh, they registered the freedmen and to vote. Uh, and that occupation, that military occupation, traumatized the South. On average, radical reconstruction in a place like Virginia only lasted about two, three years. Um, it lasted far longer in South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida. And that is going to play a critical role in how they evolve during the late 19th century. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I think it, it gives a picture of Richmond during the war that many people have not heard about before, uh, and we certainly appreciate your time today. What's uh, what's next in your research? Any new books that are on the horizon? Uh, right now, I'm investigating uh, General Order Union General Order 100, which is also known as the Lieber Code, and how it, it was passed in 1863, largely to deal with guerrillas in Missouri, but came to be embraced by the Union High Command uh, and it's epitomized by, by Sherman. Um, he was very deeply influenced while he was um, occupying Memphis and how we see this shift of war from just between combatants to consciously making war on civilians to break their will. And it's, uh, it's it, the Libra Code will actually go on to become a precedent for the Geneva Convention. So that's what I'm, I'm looking at right now. Well, it sounds fascinating, and we'll look forward to, to seeing that. Mary DeCritico, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope everyone stays well and stays healthy, 
and uh, we'll see you very soon. Thanks and have a great afternoon. Thank you.